So we are just a little bit out from this unconference that we attended. And in the first episode of this three-part series, we talked to the planners of that conference. And in this episode, we're going to learn a little bit about the presentations that happen themselves. So Tyler, do you have any like ideas about what makes for a really good conference presentation? Like when you go to a conference, what are you hoping that the presenters will give you that'll be memorable? Um, so when I'm trying to decide which sessions to go to at a conference, there are maybe three things that I think about. One of them is, do I know the speaker, right? And if it's somebody that I know and I like and I you know, think they do interesting work, then I'm interested in going to it. So th- that is usually the first thing that I think about. So you, if you're giving a conference presentation, I'm gonna be in the audience. Of course, of course. Clapping at the end. And in the middle sometimes. It's actually really awkward, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then I will look at the the titles or the abstracts or the descriptions in some way. So I get particularly frustrated when the abstract or the title doesn't line up with the presentation. Totally. feels like a, I've been, uh, it's like false advertising. So that's that's a thing that I don't like about conference presentations. But the thing that I think is memorable to me are conference presentations where it is something completely outside of anything that I've thought about, right? So really creative, really innovative, usually involves multiple people from you know collaborating in really interesting ways. And so... Do you have any conferences or conference presentations that, that were memorable? Or um, I do. Let's see. Even sometimes when you hear an amazing presentation, you don't always remember the content, but you do sometimes remember the delivery. For me, that's what makes something really memorable. And I always think about when I was a master's student, I submitted to a conference and got accepted. And this was like a big deal for me because this was a conference that was mostly people who are already professors. And so like me, this master's student, I was like, this is amazing. And then I got really nervous because I had never really given a conference presentation. I'd never written one out. So I'm already super nervous, super excited. Um, I'm sitting in the room ready to give my presentation. The guy who goes before me, he was likening a theologian to jazz. And so he scatted his presentation as if he were a jazz musician. Uh, and I just, and that sounds like it could be hokey, in, at least in my mind at that time, it was so cool and so not what I was expecting that it made me way more nervous. It's like, how do you follow that guy? Yeah. So can you give us a little uh, example of what he sounded like when he was scatting his presentation? <laughs> yeah, I will absolutely not be doing that because I am... I wasn't then, and I am not now, cool enough to pull <laughs> off scatting a conference presentation. Oh, man. Do you have any idea, any way that we can find out who this person was? I'm going to look for it, and we're going to give him a shout out. We'll yeah. put him in the in the notes for the podcast. Yeah, we should put we should get him on the podcast, and he could scat Love the it. whole time. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, do you have a good story? I'm, I was thinking about a conference that we help host here in Kalamazoo on medical humanities and medical humanities is really interdisciplinary kind of um, anything that's obvious, but it was a presentation. I, I don't remember the details. And so if whoever presented this is listening, I apologize in advance, but my memory is that it was a, some sort of clinician. I think it was a resident, maybe an internal medicine resident who got access to some sort of brain scan I think it was an EEG or, or, or some some sort of scanning of brain activity and ran it through some sort of 
either AI or some sort of algorithm that rendered the scan into musical notes. And then they had a colleague who was a cellist. And so they, they played the notes of this scan on their cello. And so we were actually listening to the brain waves that were rendered into sound waves by this artist. It was super creative, super interesting. That is so cool. Yeah, it was, it was a great presentation. I'm going to try to find that one too. Yeah, that sounds really memorable. So it seems to me like people like when you can incorporate some sort of artistic expression into what otherwise could be a really boring or mundane or overly academic kind of conversation. Yeah, I think the number of bad presentations I have sat through versus good presentations is probably 99 to 1. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, that, that might be fair. You know, I think reading the presentation can be hard for some people. Having a monotone voice can be sort of hard for some people to listen to. Going on for too long can be difficult to listen to. But these are all like skills that I feel like nobody is teaching academics how to do well. Yeah, it feels like it should be a a brown bag lunch lecture that graduate students get at some point during their training. But I guess that would probably require the professors or the faculty members to not be guilty of these things as well in order (laughs) to teach. So That's right. That's right. What I liked about the unconference was it wasn't these like long 20 to 30 minute monologues set in a monotone voice. They were either really short presentations that then had lots of audience feedback, or they were kind of like working groups where somebody presented just kind of a kernel of an idea. And then we talked about it as a group for like 45 minutes. That's a really different way of doing a conference presentation. Yeah, that's what I think the the unique value that the unconference kind of offers is that it's not traditional. It's not a series of people getting up and talking about papers that they are working on or papers that they're they've published, saving time for two or three questions at the end that are usually more people making comments about how they would have done something differently or (laughs) sharing their their resume verbally uh, instead of asking a question. But the working groups and the the feedback opportunities at the unconference, I think not only is it really unique and really useful, but I think it's by design, right? I mean, that's something that the, the planners talked about is they wanted to do design something that was different and innovative. I think that's exactly right. And so it really succeeded in like getting you involved because sometimes uh, when you're at a conference and people say, okay, now we're all going to do something. You're like, oh no, I just w- wanted to passively sit here. But mm-hmm. because you knew that was the case going in, you were going to expect to pick things that you were actually already invested in and wanted to give input on. Yeah. So going into the unconference and knowing intention like beforehand that it's going to be that way is sets you up to engage and be ready to do that. One of our friends who was going to the unconference for the first time this year, I was trying to explain to him what it was going to be like. And I don't think I did a very good job, but afterwards he said, you know what, you, you were right. It's not a traditional conference. It's not what I expected, but it was also really, really beneficial. Yeah, I thought so too. So we are going to today listen to some of the presenters talk about what they gave presentations on and then what kind of feedback they got from those of us who were participating. And we didn't get to everybody, but I think there's a good cross-section of the presenters, not just the ones I found most interesting, just the ones that were most willing to talk to us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think they, they give us a good sense of the kinds of things that people at the Unconference want to talk about.
Jason Lessandrini. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Wellstar Health System in Georgia. All right, Jason, so you gave a presentation at the Unconference. Tell us what that presentation was about and you know how the audience engaged with your topic. Yeah, thanks, Evan. So the presentation came out of a kind of a crazy idea that I had that no one really looks at ethics issues that occur in assisted living. So I reached out to a friend who does a lot of gerontological research, and coincidentally, she had a massive grant that was looking at uh, meaningful engagement in assisted living. And I asked her, could we review her field notes to see if ethical, the frequency of ethical issues that would occur there? We ended up developing a typology, and I think the typology was, was great. But for me, the more meaningful component was, like, now we know there are ethics issues, and so now we have something to do about it. So tell us, like, why was this a problem and how you got interested in it? Yeah, it was sort of just by chance, I'll be honest. I wasn't thinking a whole lot about, oh, all these, you know, I bet you there are these phenomenal ethics issues that occur in assisted living. I, I will tell you, it came out of a, I had been awarded a bioethics supplement on another project with another faculty member at another university. And the announcement came out again, and I started thinking about, what things haven't been explored? Like what areas haven't been explored? And we at Wellstar, we have a, we have actually, we have two assisted living facilities. And so I started thinking, we never get called. Like we've never been called by those facilities. I don't think we advertise there. I don't think we, they think we're a service. And so I started looking around at NIH Reporter and I found that my this friend that I had, had this research that she was doing. And so I was like, well, I mean, she can't say no to me, right? <laughs> so I might as well uh, pitch it to her and see if she's willing to hear it. So Jason, are there like different ethics issues that come up in assisted living? Totally unique? Is it kind of near most hospitals? Or are you finding, oh man, this is stuff we never talk about in the hospital? Yeah, so the answer, Devin, you know, is always depends, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I think it's everything above. So... Yes, it mirrors. There are lots of similar things. There, um, there are things around capacity, right? But they don't talk about it like that. That's what's fascinating. There are things around surrogate decision-making, but they don't talk like that. There are really unique things that maybe overlap at a skilled nursing area, but they have a sort of different, concept, uh, different contextual feature because of the community-based way that uh, assisted living works, right? You know, these residents are so connected to the people who work in these facilities. I mean, it, it's like how close Tyler and I are, right? <laughs> right? Like we're, we're close. Like he texts me randomly and that's what happens in these settings. And it creates unique issues that come up. We see, you know, lots of things around boundary violations, not in the sense of, you know, in the acute care space that you might see a physician, but, but really around like th you're, this is more of a parent taking care of a child, or this is more of siblings taking care of siblings. And, and I think that gives rise to s some particularly unique things. Now, we have a small data set, right? I mean, it was still large, 456 field notes, you know, 2000 codes. And our hope is we're gonna keep doing it. We're gonna keep going <clears throat> in the next step to see, did, did COVID impact that? Were there different things that came out? But I think the answer in short is, Yes, I think there are lots of unique things that are happening there. The other big one that happens there is we're not very good in the acute care space on dementia care. So a lot of that care gets relegated to the assisted living space. 
And then all of those types of issues come up. And, and the one that you know, we talked about yesterday that really there wasn't a unique code that I think warrants a code is around cognitive uh, stigma decline, right? Around being early dementia and what people say about you, right? As a care provider, right? Um, and, and you see a lot of it. So it, it was just amazed by it. So. so one of the fun things about the format of this conference is how presenters come with an idea or a, a pretty new or early research project and get a lot of really good peer feedback. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, yeah. there's been a couple people have come up afterwards and said, yeah, 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 I work in the dementia space. Like, that's the thing I do. That's the big one that we've heard. So lots of feedback about, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Um, I was talking with someone last night about sexual relations, which which I think we've all, maybe as ethicists, thought about sexual relations uh, in nursing facilities, but it's even it's kind of even different uh, in assisted living communities uh, because these are their homes, right? That's they move into this facility and it becomes sort of their home. So lots of uh, interesting sort of focused topic, right? It's not like oh, I think the broad project, but it's like oh, this piece would be super fascinating for me. And then someone else w- was talking about dementia uh, last night. We had a conversation about uh, dementia related stuff, and so I think the beautiful thing of the conference is hopefully will lead to future conversations. There'll be, you know, emails and maybe potential collaboration. Hi, I'm Adira Holkauer. I'm the director of the Bioethics Consultation Service at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. All right, so Adira, you gave a presentation at the UnConference. Tell us what your topic was and why it was interesting for you to talk about. My topic was called Wandering with Purpose, and it was about addressing moral injury um, in the clinical setting and sort of clinical ethicists' role in addressing moral distress and moral injury. And what was most interesting to me about what we saw in our hospital and why I wanted to communicate it was that we got called by our critical care nursing, uh, critical care director, sorry, who had said, we have a lot of nursing staff that hasn't during the pandemic responded to our supports like um, access to psychiatry, access to groups, access to all of those things. And yet we're sensing that there's still a lot of distress on the floor. Can you come in and do something? And what we wound up doing was just sort of showing up, participating in a huddle, and then just hanging out on the floor for a couple of hours with no structure in place, no agenda, no bringing up an ethical issue, and just waiting. And at first, there was kind of like this barrier of like silence around us. And then the nursing staff, one person would come and another. And once one person started sharing a story or an experience, the second person would and the third person would. And it was these little groups. And what was really interesting to me about it was, you know, there's this big question out there is should clinical ethicists be doing addressing moral distress or moral injury at all. And what we realized is that by sharing the ethical justifications for some of the actions that the nurses took, we were able to help them reframe some of their actions in a way that might be consistent, morally consistent for them, more consistent with their moral compasses when they thought that their action had been completely opposed to their moral compass. And so it was sort of an ethics intervention I would never say that, you know, we left and everybody was like, hooray, we're done with like moral illness, moral, sorry, moral injury. But we did have a report that there was a reduction in anxiety and stress on the floor once they were able to sort of have this reframing or like rejiggering of their conception of self 
And so we started replicating it. So it's kind of like we did a thing and we're like, oh, why'd this thing work? And then we started backpedaling and saying, oh, it actually matches because there was an airing that happened in that space that reduced the shame that a lot of the nurses were feeling and taking home with them. And when they started, they might have been afraid earlier to mention things for repercussions when they saw their colleagues mentioning things, their peers. They were like, oh, it might be safe to talk about this. Let me talk about it. Tell us the background of this problem. Like, what is moral injury? What's moral distress? And why are clinical ethicists being asked to be involved in it? I have one sense that clinical ethicists are asked to be involved in anything where everybody else throws up their hands and says, like, I don't know what's happening here. And they're like, call ethics. So I think that is at the root of the issue of why clinical ethicists and why there are clinical ethicists that would say this is not under our purview. This is not ethics. This is it should be under the purview of psychiatry or social work or we should bring in specialists. So I want to, a, a distinction I made during the Q&A yesterday is a difference between saying clinical ethicists should have a fluency versus an expertise. Because <laughs> I think it would be dangerous for us to go in and say, our job is to repair or help repair moral, moral injury. And moral injury being sort of the impact on one's moral compass and oneself for having either participated or witnessed a transgression of one's moral beliefs. And what that, how that um, feels to that person, how they then begin to experience life and their own decision making. So I actually think that clinical ethicists should have a fluency and should sometimes address moral illness or be part of the mechanism with, which addresses it. Not necessarily that it's our job to heal it and repair it or carry that burden ourselves. But I do think there's a space for us because there's an issue with somebody's choices the way they view their choices from a morality perspective. And we, you know, we have, that's what we do. We talk about ethics and morality. And to be able to say, actually, sort of what I said before, to sit with somebody and say, let's think through that choice and think about, wait, here's an ethical justification or a way we think about triage. So I do think that clinical ethicists have a role. And if you say, like, where this origin of this problem, I think that we've been dealing with moral this issue of moral distress, which, you know, some people say is like overused, like there's a difference, a young child dying in a hospital from an illness that causes emotional distress for staff caring for the child, but that's not necessarily moral distress or a moral injury. So we have to be careful not to paint it too broadly. But this is something I think clinical ethicists have been dealing with inadvertently for a really long time and is now in real hyper focus for everybody because of the pandemic. I'm Beckett Grimmels. I am the System Vice President for Theology and Ethics at Common Spirit Health. All right, Beckett, so you just gave a presentation to the group. Tell us about what you presented on and the kind of feedback that you got. I presented on a metric to determine what kind of volume of ethics consults a hospital should have. There's three metrics in the literature, consult to bed ratio, consult to admissions ratio, and consult to ICU bed ratio. And I propose consult the case mix index. You take the number of consults divided by the case mix index for the hospital, and that should tell you how many consults your hospital should have. So give us a perspective of why is that important? How is that going to help the field of clinical ethics? Being able to measure consult volume and what it should be across hospitals tells us a little bit about how effective the models of staffing are. So if you have a hospital that has a full-time ethicist, a professionally trained person, that's going to result in a different kind of service than perhaps a volunteer staffed committee where people have another full-time job and they do this on their spare time, so to speak. 
And having an objective metric lets you look at, well, how do these different models serve the hospital better or worse? And the benefit, I think, of CCMI is that it really gets at the acuity and complexity of patients clinically, whereas the other metrics are more volume-based as opposed to, it doesn't tell you how, what kind of sickness they are. It tells you just how many sick people you have. I think that complexity will then transition into need for ethics consults. So when I often talk about this subject, it's difficult because you say, well, on the one hand, if you're getting 50 consults a day, your staff probably needs to be able to handle some of its own ethics issues. But if you're only getting like one a month, then maybe they don't know that the ethics service exists. So high volume doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a great job. Low volume doesn't mean you're doing a good job either. So in the data that you're pulling from, what seems to be a good number? What are we talking about here? Well, that's the question, right? <laughs> um, we first, these metrics were first uh, written about maybe a year and a half ago, I want to say. So it's still really early to be able to answer that question. There are not many places that are actually using this to track it and publishing their data. So I think that somewhat remains to be seen. And, and it is true, you know, volume doesn't always correlate to quality, but at the same time, it kind of does, right? I can look, and if your hospital has 750 beds and you have one consult a year, that's a problem. If you have 25 beds and you have 500 consults a year, that's a different kind of problem also. So it, around the edges, we can really kind of say just by looking at it, it's in the middle where it becomes difficult. And, and our hope is that these metrics, if lots of people start using them, lots of hospitals track this and, and report it together, then we can tease out the differences and figure out how to answer your question. So I'm not going to answer your question because I can't. <laughs> Hi, I'm Laura Guidry-Grimes, and I'm a staff ethicist at Cleveland Clinic. All right, Laura, so you just gave a peer-to-peer uh, session about a topic that you're really interested in. So what was your topic, and how did you get interested in that topic? Yes, my peer-to-peer was on the role of clinical ethicists in addressing ableism in medical practice. This is a topic that's been of interest to me in a passionate way for a very long time. We know that ableism is a persistent problem in medicine, interpersonally, structurally, uh, systemically, and the needle isn't really moving on this. Uh, Lisa Iazoni and her colleagues have done a lot of empirical work over the years, as have others, about the ways in which uh, healthcare professionals routinely undervalue quality of life with disability, the ways in which they feel uncomfortable uh, making accommodations uh, for persons with disabilities. And I mean, there's just a lot of concerning data out there. And so I'm really interested in how clinical ethicists uh, in terms of case consultation, bedside work, as well as organizationally, how we can make a difference. So what got you interested in this topic? Well, let me see. I first became uh, introduced to disability studies through theater studies, actually. Uh, And I was in Florida during the Terry Schiavo case, sort of uh, reaching a certain stage of uh, public attention. And so I would drive by the protests on a daily basis and talk with my uh, theater professor, Carrie Sandal, about these issues. And so that really brought together the disability studies and healthcare and the sorts of uh, questions and concerns that can be uh, raised from the standpoint of ableism in medicine. So Laura, what came out of the conversation? Did you learn anything from your peers? Did you come up with, are you going to solve ableism now after that 45-minute session? Or well, what can we take away from what you learned? 
Yeah, so I always learn from my peers. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for everyone who attended the peer-to-peer. There are lots of really great ideas and personal experiences uh, as being patients ourselves, as being parents, uh, as being clinical ethicists of what we've observed in the sort of knowledge gaps that exist in clinical ethics. So it was validated uh, by my peers that, you know, this really is an area where clinical ethicists need to understand more. We need to have better training and trying to figure out uh, some solutions. It's going to be a multifaceted issue, right? Because it comes back to medical education. It comes back to even how spaces are accessible or inaccessible. It comes down to uh, what metrics are used and what's put in the chart note and the narratives that are perpetuated about disability and how disability is conflated with poor health and illness. And, you know, our basic concepts in bioethics are also impoverished. And we talked about that uh, as well. You know, issues of like personhood and dignity and even autonomy can all fall into certain ableist traps. And so some solutions that we talked about is uh, trying to find ways to caucus uh, as clinical ethicists with good partners in the disability community, as well as people in positions of liter- uh, leadership in medicine uh, and medical education and working both you know, locally within our institutions, but also uh, more broadly. We need to have a good sense of like, what are the actual issues? So being able to identify those issues, uh, working together to adjust our antenna, so to speak, so that if we're doing a consult, if we're part of a committee looking at transplant eligibility, if we're looking at policies, that we can be attuned to the issues that need attention from the standpoint of disability rights and disability justice. And so that identifying work is going to be a huge project in itself, but then also learning how to uh, address it in a reasonable, responsible way within our role and making sure that we're partnering appropriately along the way. Thomas Cunningham, I am the Director of Bioethics at Kaiser Permanente West Los Angeles Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. All right, so Thomas, you led a conversation yesterday about a topic you're really interested in. So tell us about that topic. Sure. The presentation was a lightning round presentation, and uh, we talked about uh, a survey we did of the ethicists that we work with. There are 11 ethicists, and we asked them, what's core to your work as an ethicist? and what's peripheral or outside of the main scope of your practice. And I'm interested in that because uh, for people who do the unusual job of a clinical ethicist, there's debate over what we should be doing and how we should be spending our time. And one of the first steps within our group to try to agree to that is to figure out, well, what do you already think you're doing that you should be doing as a core part of your work? So what kind of feedback did you get at this conference that maybe you wouldn't have gotten at some other, maybe more general themed conference? One of the things I love about the, the unconference is that you're really talking to an audience of practitioners who are very well educated in the work and very experienced at it. So the feedback I got was agreement that this is a problem. And also one of the data points we showed is that out of the group, not even 100% agreed that we were all doing ethics consults. And so I, I, I enjoyed the laughter in the crowd to highlight the absurdity of that finding, which is absurd on its face, but it's good to have that affirmation from such a, a solid group of people. As you insinuated, not even clinical ethicists agree amongst themselves about what are the core things that they do and maybe some of the side projects. 
So I agree. It seems like consultation would be one that we would all agree is part of the job of a clinical ethicist. Um, that's the first thing you think of. Apparently, they didn't all agree. What other surprising findings uh, did you see in the data that you collected? So the data was qualitative. There was no structure to what people could put into the information. And so that's, for example, why we didn't get 100%, because one of the people entering the data was just not feeling like playing ball that day and entered in some not very helpful information. But as a researcher, you have to report what you find. And the finding is itself interesting that out of 11 people, one of the people was so grumpy that they put literally their job title in as the core work, which <laughs> you can't get meaningful information out of, right? It's sort of a, a kind of like a conscientious objection to the whole project. But that itself is a finding. And so that was surprising. Other surprising things were uh, that, for example, there were only, I believe, five things that we all said were the core things that we do. I would have expected some larger things. So, for example, research and scholarship out of our group based on the health system environment we were we are working was only two out of 11 people. Mm-hmm. And although I can understand, given the work environment, to me, that is a core part of what ethicists should be competent in. That doesn't mean that they practice it a lot, but there should be at least some amount of scholarly productivity. Like giving a presentation at this at this talk is a good example. It doesn't mean you're writing lots of papers or even any papers, but some kind of engagement with a research or scholarship style approach to understanding and reflecting upon your practice. And there's a huge range of things that that could be, right? It could be humanities. It could be quantitative. There are lots of very wide options there. I was very surprised that so few people recognize that. My name is Holland Kaplan. I'm a clinical ethics fellow at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, And uh, my background is in uh, internal medicine. I practice clinically at our county hospital, Bentop General Hospital. So Holland, we just heard you give this great presentation talking about open notes. So just give us a little background. What are open notes for people who don't know? And why should ethicists, or anybody else for that matter, care about them? Yeah, so the open notes movement um, is something that started uh, back around 2010 when uh, both physicians and patients kind of started to feel like um, there should be more transparency in medical care and in medical documentation. Um, And so that kind of culminated in this uh, 21st Century uh, Cures Act that I think a lot of people have heard about that officially became law in 2021. And so now, as uh, physicians or as ethicists, when we write a note um, and we push sign, um, it is uh, immediately available to the patient and their family to read. So I think there's a lot of um, clinical and ethical implications of that that are important to think about. So how did you get interested in this topic? So I I first got interested in it from the perspective of a physician um, because I realized that things I was writing in my notes or tests that I was ordering may come back and be released to the patient before I actually, as the physician, had the opportunity to talk to them. Um, And then I've entered this new space um, as a clinical ethics fellow where I'm realizing that a lot of the documentation that I'm doing and the ethics notes that I'm writing contain information that could be controversial or could be misunderstood by patients and their families when they are immediately able to see it. So we had a great sharing experience where lots of people give you input about how they think about this. What do you think were the big takeaways that you learned from your peers about this topic? I think one of the big takeaways is that as uh, clinical ethicists, open notes is uh, relevant to us. Um, It has ethical implications that are unique um, to the practice of clinical ethics. Um, And it's something that's uh, important for us to think about and uh, develop a practice around. Um, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway.
I'm Trevor Bibler. I am the Bioethics Program Director at Houston Methodist Hospital, and I'm also an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Very well, Trevor, you gave a peer-to-peer talk today where you collaborated about an idea. So what was your idea, and why are you interested in that topic? Sure. So I spoke about the challenge that doing unit-focused education presents. I think there's an implicit recognition that really focusing on unit education can have a lot of benefits, especially for for the units. When we have the opportunity to really address an issue in either a proactive or a reactive way, there seems to be quite a bit of value in that. The challenge is that we do, at least our services, and this seemed to be common to our entire group, we do a lot of ethics education, but we also have other opportunities related to direct consultation work, research, administrative, all that good stuff. So one of the perennial challenges is how to balance unit-focused education when we have all these other competing interests, even when it can end up being very effective. The part of the other challenge is that sometimes that effect is for people who happen to come to it at 7 a.m. So that, that was one of the perennial challenges that we've discussed. So what kind of feedback did you get from your peers and was it useful? Yes, extremely useful. I got a lot of fantastic feedback. A couple of couple of the things that came up was a emboldening to have us think through these issues, not as if every educational intervention has to be something enduring and recurring and happening over and over again. We can have the opportunity to identify an issue, figure out our collaborators, jump in on that and then get out. Right? There's still value in something like that. Another key insight was that it seems like the purpose of the intervention has to drive everything else. If you don't have a very clear idea of what the purpose of it is, then you might end up floundering a little bit. You might not be able to get the right people in the right room at the right time. So that was extremely important. The other point was that we, we, we spoke a little bit about how we would evaluate the role of ethics consultation when we do unit-focused education. So is the goal to bump up the cases? Is the goal to bring down the cases through education and empowerment? What do we do for that? And I think we keyed in on something that was pretty important that it depends on the purpose, obviously, but we would hope to get some type of bump, possibly in very ethically complex cases where our external expertise can have direct value in a very um, concrete manner. But then there might be a little bit of a downturn on the more routine cases that we feel like could maybe be answered by policy or somebody with um, a little bit of education on the unit. So it, it, was, a, it was very helpful on, on that as well because I had this very this idea that I wasn't quite sure what the effect on our consults should be. And the conversation really helped me think through, well, it, it's not an either or, it can be a both and. Can I ask you, so what are the units in the hospital that you work in that often require this kind of education? Is it the intensive care unit or is it kind of all over the place and you're doing these in-unit education services all the time? Our heaviest hitters tend to be our ICUs. We've had the opportunity to be invited by a surgical liver ICU to give a whole wide range of ethics topics, uh, hour-long presentations throughout the year. We've done that for about a year and a half now, and that's been pretty successful. And part of the way we tried to keep it collaborative was by taking that invitation, but then giving them a list of what we feel like we could, without a whole lot of legwork, discuss and lead a conversation on, and then have them kind of decide and vote on it from that. So our surgical liver ICU is one place. 
where we've had more of the jump in, give a quick lesson type of half an hour conversations has been in our um, cardiovascular intensive care unit. Most recently, that had to do with questions related to determination of death uh, according to neurological criteria. There was the assumption as part of our CVICU intensivist that only a neurologist could declare death. So that was, it seemed like a kind of very clear education point that we had a policy on. We get questions about it. And we use that really as an entree to get our foot in the door to not just talk about the policy, right? Because there's a difference between saying, read the policy. But we we had the opportunity then to parlay that into a little bit of conversation. And I, I'm using a little bit there intentionally because there wasn't a whole lot of robust conversation, but a little bit of conversation on the challenges when family members requested additional time to say goodbye or reject the designation of um, death by neurological criteria or brain death. So that those are two instances of the heavy hitters. We are hoping to do uh, a little bit more on our nursing floors as part of this, but part of the part of my takeaways was that the collaboration really needs to be there. So I honestly, we honestly need to just listen to them a little bit more other than these general ideas that ethics might be able to be of help. So that's one of my concrete steps moving forward to your to your point, Devin, is that for us at least, we want to establish a nursing presence in a way that we don't have right now. And unit-focused education seems to be one of the one of the ways of possibly doing that. My name is Christy Horsberg. I am a staff ethicist at Cleveland Clinic. Um, We're multiple hats in the institution, but primarily work in our community hospitals. One of the fun parts about this conference is the unusual format. And so tell us about your peer-to-peer presentation, what the topic was, and how this format was useful. What I brought to the conference was to talk about how to utilize engagement measures to show the impact of ethics programming within the institution. Our organization, we utilize several different metrics to to show the value of the services that we provide. But one that is really hard to capture is how we help caregivers, we call caregivers, healthcare professionals, really feel empowered in their role when they're in these sticky situations to be able to talk with their leaders about what they think the right thing to do is in certain situations. Um, And that really ties to what we see on Prescani questions, which are these employee engagement surveys that our institution takes about every two years, are questions like, do you feel safe to take issues to your leadership? So it seems to intuitively tag on to some of that, but we don't know how to capture that really with ethics programming. And what we wanted to do, we've talked about it a lot within our group, within our center, but we haven't come up on the solution. So what I love about the Unconference is that we can take those issues and really work with our colleagues and experts nationally on how do we resolve this particular issue? Where is the answer? What do we really need to think about? So why we brought it here is it's just this inherent crowdsourcing opportunity. So what did you learn from your peers that's going to help you with your question? Somewhat expected, um, a lot of apprehension about the idea of utilizing engagement as a potential metric to show the value of ethics programming. I think one caution that is going to be really important for us to consider is we don't want to measure those things that we can't control. So we really need to be careful about setting expectations with leadership about what it is we think we actually can impact. So our small piece that we can move the needle on within the broader umbrella of engagement. Can you say more about what's the worry? Like, what does leadership expect you to say you can do that you maybe wouldn't want to measure and and put that forward as the way that you should be evaluated? 
We don't want to take sole responsibility for improving all of the engagement metrics that are measured on the what we have the Press Ganey survey at some institutions. I think it's the Great Place to Work survey as well. That is not all within our bucket. So we don't want to set expectations so high that we end up setting ourselves up for failure. And then we have the consequences if, if that needle doesn't move as much as they might like it to be able to move. So we want to make sure that we're being careful that we're setting expectations realistically as to what it is we are able to do as part of a bigger package or a plan that the institution might have for a specific unit or a specific department to help improve the engagement of that group. For more information about today's episode, show notes and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. I'm in a conference or like on a Zoom call or something, they say, okay, let's break up into small groups. Just by coincidence, my Zoom always crashes when that (laughs) happens and I don't have to do a small group uh, activity.